Right, it's great to be with you guys this morning. You can turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. It's my privilege this morning to start us into our Essentials series that we're going to be doing this summer. We're going to be going through the Essentials material, the, the core or foundational beliefs and practices of the Christian faith. Now, uh, as we walk through these lessons, these essential lessons these summer, this summer, we're going to be doing more teaching than preaching. We've got a lot of material to cover as we talked about last week. One of our, our vision goals for this coming year is to equip all of you to, to really know and own your faith so you can pass it on to others. So Sundays this summer are going to be dedicated to equipping you in the essentials. So we're going to cover a lot of material each week. It will help you to have something in front of you. So let me encourage you. The material we're going through is, is actually the essentials packet. You can go on the website and download this for free. Just go to downloads, Bible studies, essentials. It's, it's there for you for free. If you'd rather have a nice bound copy like this, you can pick up one for $10 in the church office at either campus. So please grab one of these. It'll really help you as we go through because there is a lot of material to cover. So this Sunday, we're starting into lesson one. It's actually on page one of your packet. It's titled, Who is God? We're talking about God this morning. And let me kind of set this up for you so you know why we're talking about this. About 12 years ago, I was, I was still an engineer, and my company sent me over to India to do a project with our partnering corporation, and they, they attached me to an Indian engineer for about a week, and, and, and this man and I, we kind of got to know each other over the course of that week. I got to ask him a lot of questions. I learned a lot of things about him. He's, he's a Hindu man. And, and like all Hindus, he believes in, in a pantheon of gods, lots of gods. In fact, uh, Hindus hold to the existence of something like 300 million gods. Uh, but no one person can worship all of those gods. So every family chooses one or maybe a few gods to, to worship in particular. For his family, for many generations, they had worshipped this particular god who lived in, in this particular cave in a vast national park in India. And, and you could go visit their god if you wanted to go on a long hiking trip, you could go visit their God in the cave. And, and, and whatever God you worshipped had certain requirements that he placed upon you. For this particular God, he had very few requirements, but one of them was that you had to go shave the hair off your son in a particular river when he came of age. So he missed one of the days working with me because he was off shaving his son in this river. Well, as my friend shared with me about his belief in God, I kept wondering to myself, wow. Our gods are very different. Our gods are, are nothing alike. How am I going to explain my God to this man? How am I going to explain the God of the Bible to a man who believes something completely different? Well, let me present that question to you. How would you explain your God in one sentence? How would you explain the God of the Bible in one sentence? Maybe you have a neighbor who is, who is a Hindu or, or a Muslim or a Buddhist or an atheist. They ask you about what you believe. What will you say about the God of the Bible? Anything in particular come to your mind as you think about that question? Well, this morning I want to give you an answer. I want to help you develop an answer to that question. How do you explain the God of the Bible in one sentence. That's what we're going to work on this morning. But the reason that we're working on this question, that we're studying this, is, is not merely for intellectual curiosity. The goal this morning is not simply to grow your intellect. Ultimately, the goal is to grow your worship. 
uh, I would point you back to one of the verses we talked about last week. The great commandment, Matthew 22. Look in your Bibles, Matthew 22, verse 37. I encourage you, this is kind of the the verse of the week of this essentials lesson. We'll be giving you a verse to memorize each week. This is your verse to memorize this week, Matthew 22, 37 and 38. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, the lawyer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. This is the great and foremost commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. The most important thing in life for all of us, the most important thing without exception, is to love our God. And we need to love him not just with our heart, not with just our our soul, but with our mind, with our intellect, with our understanding. That's why we're studying God this morning. You cannot love a God you do not know. You cannot worship a God you do not know. So this morning we are going to talk about God. And uh, the reason I included this quote from uh, A.W. Tozer is I think he put it best. I think this is his fleshing out of the great commandment. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Without doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. The most important thing about you is your thoughts about God. What do you think of when you hear the word God. That's why we're studying it this morning because it's the most important thing about us. We're commanded to love God with our minds. So we're gonna work on that this morning. So let's jump right in. Who is the God of the Bible? How do we describe the God of the Bible? Well, let's start with the thing that is most distinctive about the biblical conception of God and that is Trinity. That's, that's the big one that really sets Christianity apart. God in his being, in his essential nature, he is Trinity. Now, now where did that term, that word Trinity come from? If you look from, in your Bible from cover to cover, you'll see the word Trinity never appears. That, that word is not in the Bible, even though the concept is clearly taught throughout Scripture. The word Trinity is actually a Latin word, Trinitas. It means the number three. It was first used in the third century by, by a theologian named Tertullian to describe God's nature, to describe God as triune, as trinity. And, and the best definition that I have found of this word, what does the trinity mean? Here's a definition I would give you. I think it's worth memorizing. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And each person is fully God and there is one God. That's what the Trinity means. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and each person is fully God and there is one God. What this definition is doing, it's giving us three things that are are what you might call descriptions of the Trinity, three things that help us to understand the Trinity. First, the diversity of God. Father, Son, and Spirit are all God. There are three persons that are God. Uh, Second, the equality in the Trinity. Each of those persons is fully God. The Father is not more God than the Son. Every one of them is fully and completely divine. And finally, the unity of the Trinity. There is one God, only one God, not multiple gods. Okay, so diversity, equality, unity. That is the Trinity. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. 
I encourage you to to memorize that or at least understand it in your mind so you can repeat that. Now, that understanding of the Trinity is actually not hard at all to prove from Scripture. Let me walk you through some of the key verses that you would want to have in hand as you walk somebody through the Trinity. Uh, We could start with the unity of God. That there is only one God and we would turn to Deuteronomy 6.4, perhaps the most important verse in the entire Old Testament. It's called the Shema. It was the statement of faith in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear O Israel, the Lord, is, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. That same point is made in Isaiah 45. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me? A righteous God and a savior, there is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There are not 300 million gods. There is only one God. Scripture is absolutely clear about that. Uh, We won't read them, but if you are writing notes, you could also have people look at Isaiah 43, 10 through 11, and 1 Corinthians 8, 6. They both make that point. Okay, so the unity of God, not at all hard to prove in Scripture. How about the diversity and equality within the Trinity. That one we can also prove. Now, when you turn to the Old Testament and you ask, is the Trinity revealed in the Old Testament? Do you see Father, Son, and Spirit as God in the Old Testament? Well, the answer is yes, but it's in mystery form. The Old Testament just hints at the existence of the Trinity. Here's one of those key passages, Psalms 45, verses six and seven. It says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Notice God distinguished from God. There there is one called God and yet he has a God. So I I think the Jews in the Old Testament would have read this verse and said, wait a minute, what? What? How is God distinct from God? Another passage that communicates that same mystery, Isaiah 48. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. Come near to me, listen to this. From the first I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place I was there and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Only place in the Old Testament that you really get this clear Trinity hint. Okay, there's God who sends God who comes with God the spirit. So something incredible is going on. Uh, The Jews would look at that and wrestle with that and not really know how to put all those pieces together until the New Testament came. The New Testament takes the the mystery of the Trinity and it fleshes it out. It makes it explicit. Lots of verses we could turn to. I'll just give you a few in particular. Uh, Perhaps the most famous is Matthew 28, 19, right in the middle of the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This baptismal formula, as Jesus lists off these three names, the only way for these things to work is that you list out three equals. So if Jesus is not God, if Jesus is just a man, then this verse doesn't make any sense. You're not going to baptize someone in the name of God, a man, and God. They've all got to be equals. They've all got to be God. So you get the Trinity here. Uh, Another key verse that we could take people to is John 20, 28. Uh, Thomas answered and said to him, that is Jesus, my Lord and my God. 
Okay. Thomas admits that Jesus is my Lord and my God. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus receives that worship. So Jesus is God. How do we prove that the Spirit is also God? We turn to Acts chapter 5. Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? You have not lied to men, but to God. So, so notice the connection there. The Holy Spirit, to lie to the Holy Spirit, is to lie to God. The Holy Spirit is a person. You can't lie to a force. <laughs> you can only lie to a person. So the Spirit is a person who is God. Okay, so Scripture is, is very clear. Scripture clearly lays out the realities of the Trinity. Going back to our definition just to help us own this. Scripture reveals that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And each person is fully God and there is one God. Now, what else does the Bible reveal to us about the Trinity? How are we to understand the Trinity of God? Well, uh, just a couple more things that Scripture lays out for us. First, Scripture tells us that the Trinity is united in self-giving love. The basic nature of the Trinity, if you want to describe God as a triune community, the nature of that community is selfless love. Primary passage you'd turn to to prove that is John chapter 17. He said, this is Jesus talking, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. What what Jesus is telling us here is that the nature of the Trinity is that each person of the Trinity does not exalt themselves. Each person does not serve themselves. They serve the other members of the Trinity. That's the beauty of the Trinity. All three persons loving and giving and exalting the others. Scripture tells us that the Father lives to exalt the Son. The Son lives to exalt the Father. The Spirit lives to exalt the Father and the Son. They exalt and love one another. That is the basic nature of the Trinity, self-giving, sacrificial love to one another. That's what unites the Trinity together is selfless love. That's the first thing uh, the Bible tells us about this triune community. The second thing the Bible tells us about this Trinity is it is a hierarchy of equals. There is order in the Trinity, but order without inferiority. In the order of the Trinity, which goes back to eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit each freely chose a role, a function to play in the Godhead. The Father uh, was by choice the sovereign ruler. He, He rules over all things, including over the Son and the Spirit. The son, he freely chose to submit to the father. He wasn't forced into it. He freely chose to submit to the father and become, in accordance with the father's will, the savior of the world and the judge of the world. That's the part of the son. And the third person of the Trinity, the spirit. The spirit freely chose out of love to submit himself to the father and to the son and to become the agent of God's will in the world. The spirit is the behind the scenes person of the Trinity. He's the one bringing all of creation to worship God. He was there at creation. He was there at redemption. He is there at all moments leading creation to worship its creator. So Father, Son, and Spirit, there's order in the Trinity, but it's order without hierarchy. 
The Son and the Spirit are not less God than the Father. They are not less powerful. They are not less wise. They would not be poorer leaders than the Father would. They are all equally perfect and infinite in every way. And yet out of selfless love, out of free choice, the Son submitted himself to the Father and the Spirit submitted himself to the Father and the Son in eternity past and for all eternity future. The Trinity is really the model for us of submission in the church and in marriage and in the world. It is a submission of equals out of love, not out of compulsion. Okay, so as the Bible reveals it, the Trinity simply stated is God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and each person is fully God and there is one God. And these three persons are united in self-giving love and there is hierarchy with equality, order without inferiority. So that's the Trinity. Now, I do encourage you again to memorize this definition or something like it. Have something that you can say when you are explaining your God to someone who doesn't believe in our God. Uh, it's, it's really uh, not hard to, to define the Trinity and to prove the Trinity from Scripture. But even if you memorize this definition, I, I got to admit to you, um, you're never going to fully understand the Trinity. We, we can define it and we can prove it from Scripture, but we can't fully wrap our minds around the Trinity. The, the Trinity is too big for us. H- how can three persons be one God at the same time? H- how can three be one and one be three? The first time people hear about the Trinity, it, it sounds a, a little bit absurd to them, a little crazy. How can it make sense? The Trinity goes beyond human logic. It defies human reasoning ability. There's no analogy that can completely communicate it. The Trinity sounds absurd at first blush. That's certainly the opinion of our critics. Thomas Jefferson, who was not a Trinitarian, he was a Unitarian, only one person in his God. He said that the Trinity is mere abracadabra. It's like magic, a sleight of hand. It completely makes no sense. It's worthy of nothing but ridicule. The great post-Civil War politician and orator, Robert Ingersoll, was famous for saying nothing could be more idiotic and absurd than the doctrine of the Trinity. They're saying that because how can you even wrap your mind around this? It's crazy. Three persons in one God. Well, how do we respond to that criticism? When someone says to us that the Trinity is absurd, how do we respond to that? Well, let me give you just a few ideas. Here's what comes to my mind when somebody says that. Here's how I respond. A few things to think about. First of all, um, in my opinion, the Trinity actually reinforces our faith. According to our critics, the Trinity is proof that Christianity is absurd and can't be true. I actually think the Trinity proves the opposite, and here's why. If you're going to make up a religion, what's the last thing you're going to do? Make up a religion that no one can completely understand. That's bad marketing. No one's going to do that. No human being is going to invent the Trinity because it doesn't make sense to any of us completely. It's beyond any of us to fully understand. I think the, the Trinity is actually proof that Christianity is true because only God could reveal this. No man would make it up. All the other gods of the other religions, I can understand that. I can see why you'd make that up, but not the Trinity. So I think the Trinity actually proves, it strengthens our faith rather than undermines it. Second thing I would say when when the Trinity is criticized is that I believe only the Trinity explains the existence of love. You cannot have love without the Trinity. 
Uh, in, in modern day Judaism and in Islam, they don't have a, a triune God. They have a monopersonal God. There's one God and he is just one person. Well, in both Judaism and Islam, that presents a problem for them when you begin to talk about love. Because before God created the world, uh, where was God? Well, he was all alone. There was no one to have relationship with. God was simply completely alone before he created the world. So in Islam and Judaism, for God to have love, he is dependent upon his creation. He can't know love. He can't experience love unless we're here. Because without us, God would be utterly alone. And when you're alone, you can't have love. Love demands relationships. I think C.S. Lewis put this point really well. He said it this way, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love, but they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. In Judaism, modern day Judaism and Islam, God is not by nature love because he could not know love. He could not experience love until he created the world and and learned love with us. It's not true in the Trinity. In the Trinity, God has always been love. God has always perfectly known love and perfectly experienced love within the community of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit always selflessly, perfectly loving one another. The Trinity is the explanation and source and model of all the love that we enjoy. That's why we can say God is love because of Trinity. So without the Trinity, you would not have love. That's that's the only thing that makes it possible. Uh, Third, final thing I'd say to this critique is why would people expect that we would ever fully understand God? Why do we expect that we're gonna ever fully wrap our minds around God? I love how Isaiah puts it. Isaiah 55, God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What God is telling us in this passage is he does not expect us to fully understand him. God's not asking you to fully explain him. No, God admits you're never gonna get there. You are never going to fully explain me. You are never going to fully understand me because I'm infinite and you're finite. You will always be finite. You will never be able to wrap your brain around me. It's simply not possible for finite creatures. That reality drove John Wesley to put it this way. Bring me a worm that can comprehend a man and then I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. To God, we are but a worm. How could we ever expect to fully understand him? And really, that that shouldn't be a a source of of doubt or discouragement for us. Actually, that should really encourage us. I love how Augustine put it, one of my favorite quotes anywhere in church history. We are speaking of God. What marvel if you do not comprehend? For if you comprehended, he is not God. If you could wrap your mind around God, then that's a pretty small God. Because we have pretty small minds. It's actually a, a, a strength to our faith. It's actually a strength. A, it bolsters our worship when we realize we'll never wrap our minds around our God. He's too big for that. He's too great for that. He will always be infinitely greater, infinitely bigger than us. So when people critique, when they challenge, when they criticize the Trinity, I turn it back on them. 
Because I think the Trinity is actually the most reasonable explanation of existence. That God is bigger than us, so big we'll never fully explain or understand him. Okay, so that's, that's the Trinity. That's the first thing that I encourage you guys to, to have in your minds ready to share with someone when they ask you about your God. You want to be able to say to them, and you don't have to use exactly my words, but however you want to put it, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. Okay, that's, that's what we mean by Trinity. That's the first thing we want to say about the Christian or biblical belief about God. The second thing that we want to talk about are, are the attributes of God. God's attributes are, are, are descriptions of what God is like. They are adjectives that describe God. Now, if you were to list all the things that the Bible says about God, you would have a list that went on page after page after page uh, that would be unwieldy to use. And so people try to summarize the attributes of God in a short little list. And and there's no one right list. I'm going to share with you my list this morning. You're welcome to use it or you can modify it and, and use your own. But here is how I summarize all of the attributes of God in 11 items, 11 summary attributes of God. And they're divided into two groups. The first group talks about how great our God is. That's what the first set of attributes is about, God's greatness. And I'm just going to walk you through these. Uh, We're going to move through these pretty quickly. I encourage you to go back and review this material on your own, but I just want to give you an overview of the attributes of God. They're each essential. Each of these attributes you need to know, you need to understand, because they are each foundational to your faith and to your life. So where I would begin, the first attribute under God is great that I would list out is that God is free. What do we mean by God being free? What we mean is that our God is not limited by anything outside of himself, nor is he dependent on anything. The God of the Bible is the only free being that has ever existed. Every other creature is in some sense limited. God is without limit. He is completely free. Uh, We might use similar terms. We might say God is is self-existent. He does not owe his existence or life to anyone or anything. We might say that God is self-sufficient. He does not need anything from anyone. He has everything he needs in and of himself. We might say that God is infinite. He is without boundary. He is without limitation. All of those mean essentially the same thing. And to prove this point that our God is utterly, absolutely free, we would point people to Acts 17. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God is the source of all things. He needs nothing from us or anyone else. That's what it means that God is free. Second attribute that I would point out is that God is eternal. I would define eternal this way. It means that God is not created. God is without beginning or end. God exists outside the dimension of time and is not constrained by it, yet he can choose to interact in time with his creation. And there's a couple verses that I would point people to. The first is 1 Timothy 1.17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He is eternal. He is without beginning and end. But actually, I'd go even further than that. I'd point people to 2 Peter 3, 8. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Not only does God not have a beginning and not have an ending, but God is not constrained by time. Again, this connects with his freedom. He is not constrained by the passage and flow of time. He can interact in time however he sees fit. He's not bound to it like we are. 
So God is eternal. Third attribute I'd list out. God is immutable. What does that mean? God does not change. God does not change in his nature, in his attributes, in his sovereign plan. All of those are fixed for all time. You could use some similar terms here. This is what we might say when we say that God is perfect. When we say that God is perfect, we're saying there's no room for God to improve. So he's not going to be a better version of himself tomorrow than he is today. No, he is already absolutely perfect. There's no room for improvement, so he's immutable. He is the perfect, unchanging standard of perfection. Uh, You could also use the term simple. God is simple. That sounds like a weird way to describe the God of the Bible. Not that simple to understand, but he is simple in and of himself. What we mean by that is that God is not loving today and just tomorrow. He's not all-powerful today and all-knowledgeable tomorrow. God is everything he is at all times. All of his attributes in perfect harmony with one another. He doesn't change. He doesn't have moods that swing one way or another. God is always unchangingly himself. So God is immutable, and we would point people to Malachi 3.6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. The reason we have peace and security in life is because God does not change. He is not capricious. Fourth attribute we'd point people to, our God is omnipotent. That means all-powerful, almighty. Uh, You could use a similar term, he is sovereign. Omnipotence means that God is the all-powerful, supreme ruler of the universe. He is able to do anything he chooses to do, yet he never chooses to do anything that is contrary to his plan or character. So God can do anything he chooses to do, yet he always chooses to do that which is consistent with who he is and what kind of stuff he does. The passage we would point people to is Psalm 135. For I know that the Lord is great and that our, our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Whatever he pleases, whatever he desires, he does. Nothing can stop him because he has all power. Next attribute we'd point people to is God's omniscience, that God knows all things. God knows and understands all things, past, present, and future, both actual things as well as all possible things. There's nothing hidden from God. He knows what would have happened if you would have chosen B instead of A. He knows everything, past, present, and future, actual and possible. And we would point people to Psalm 139. This is a chapter that's worth having dog-leafed in your Bible. Really good one. Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. So God knows everything about us, past, present, and future in perfect detail. That's God's omniscience. Final attribute under God is great is his omnipresence. Omnipresent means that God is everywhere, always completely present in his creation. Always everywhere, completely present in his creation, yet always distinct from his creation. We need to distinguish the omnipresence of God from from those religions that would be called pantheism, that that God is in everything, that he is everything, that everything is part of God. That's not the Christian conception of God. God is always eternally distinct from his creation, yet he is always everywhere fully present in his creation. And a verse that we could point people to would be Jeremiah 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord. 
Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. There's nowhere you can go where God is not. God is not more present in one place than another place. You're not closer to God this morning because you're at church rather than if you were at home. God is as present at your home as he is at your church. He's as present in America as he is in Borneo, as he is on Pluto. He is always everywhere fully, completely present. So those are the six attributes we list out under God is great. Now let's move to the second class of attributes. Again, sorry, we're running through these so quickly. Just giving you guys an overview. Go back over these when you have the time. Second group of attributes describes how good God is, that God is infinitely good. And where we would begin is the holiness of God. Our God is holy. The holiness of God means that God is absolutely distinct from his creation and separate from all sin. When you see that word holy or holiness in scripture, uh, there's really two ideas in mind. You have moral holiness, that someone is distinct from sin, that someone never commits or participates in sin. And then you have absolute holiness, that God is unlike anything else, that God is completely, utterly distinct from his creation. We use the word transcendent to describe that. God is not one of us. God is transcendent. He rules above us. He has all majesty. He is eternally separate from his creation. And the verse that we would point people to is, of course, Isaiah 6.3. We talked about that this last semester. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Only attribute that appears three times. You repeat things in Hebrew to emphasize them. God's telling us, I want you to know I'm not like you. I am holy, holy, holy. Most important thing to know about God, he is holy. He is utterly distinct from us. So God is holy. That's where the the good attributes begin. Second attribute we'd put under God is good is that he is just. He is righteous. Actually, it's the same term in both Hebrew and Greek, just or righteous. It means that God always does that which is right, that which is correct, that which is true and proper. Uh, A related term would be the wrath of God. God's wrath is God's just anger in action. When God's justice comes forth in action, that's wrath. The passage that we would point people to for the justice of God is Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. God is upright in all that he does. Third attribute under God is good that we would point out is that God is true. God is the standard of all truth. He is absolutely faithful to himself, to his word, and to his people. God cannot tell a lie, is how you could put it. That's actually what Titus 1-2 tells us. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Yeah, God is omnipotent, but remember, he never does anything that is inconsistent with his nature. His nature is truth, and so, therefore, it is impossible for God to lie. Everything he says, everything he does always perfectly conforms to truth. He is always faithful to himself, to his word, and to his people. Fourth attribute we'd put under God is good is that he is loving. God is unconditionally self-giving to others. This love is, is most perfectly expressed in the Trinity, but God freely shares that love with his creation. His self-givingness, that's what real love is. Real love is is not an emotion. Real love is a choice to give yourself to someone else. That's what God does. The Father does it to the Son, the Son to the Father, the Spirit to both. Giving of self, God does it to his creation as well. 
He gives of himself to others. That's love. Uh, and the verse that we would point people to is 1 John four sixteen. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. God is love. God does not choose love. God does not wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be loving to you today. No, God simply is love. It is what he always is. It's an immutable part of his eternal nature. He is always self-givingly loving to creation. That's the fourth attribute we'd put under God is good. Finally, fifth, gracious. Uh, Grace means to give someone something good that they don't deserve. The related term is, is mercy. It's the flip side. It's to withhold something bad from someone who deserves that bad thing. The Bible tells us that God is, is gracious and merciful. That's not something that he is on an occasional basis. It's who he always is. God delights in grace and mercy. He loves to show compassion to, to all creation, not just to the elect, but to all of humanity, to all of creation. God loves to be gracious. He loves to be compassionate. And the verse that we would point people to, Exodus 34, 6. This one's really worth memorizing. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That's God's name for himself. Here's who I am, he says to Moses. I am compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Okay, so that's our list of attributes, 11 of them. That helps us to get back to the original question, who is God? Who is our God? How do I explain my God to my Hindu friend, my engineering companion? What do I say about God? Well, I would encourage you this week, spend some time reflecting on this material and getting ready to answer that yourself in your own relationships with others. Here's how I answer it. Here is my summary sentence. Again, you don't have to use my words. This is just how I do it to give you a model. I like to say, if I was to summarize who God is in one sentence, the God of the Bible is infinitely great and infinitely good. And he eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. That's what the Bible reveals about God in a nutshell. And then if I have time, I'm going to go talk about that list of attributes. I'm going to flesh out who God is to the person I'm talking to. I'll take you back to that list. Uh, The reason that, that we walk through this list, again, it's not merely for intellectual growth. My goal this morning is not to help you grow in knowledge, although that's important. My ultimate goal is to help you grow in worship. My goal is that as you guys familiarize yourself with this list, as you, as you reflect on it and as you think about it, it will drive you to worship. Really, that's the goal of all of this. Why do we study God? Because it drives our worship. And let me give you a, a practical exercise. How do you connect this list, all of this academic material we've gone over this morning, how do you connect these attributes to the worship of God? Let me give you something to do. This week, I want to encourage you to look back at this list. Again, you can download it in the packet. It's all here, this list of 11 attributes and the verses that go with them. I encourage you, spend some time, look at each attribute and ask yourself this question. What would my life look like if this was not true of God? If God did not have this attribute, how would my life be different? Would it be different at all? Well, let's do one together. Look at free. How would my life be different if God was not free? If our God was a limited God, 
if, if his actions could be limited by maybe another God or by some universal force like, like evil or chance or something like that, how would our lives be different? Well, I, I know my life would, would be very different if that was the case. Rather than being filled with, with peace and security, which I feel on a daily basis, I would be filled with insecurity and uncertainty. Why? Because there's a lot of promises that God has made to us that I count on. Every day I count on God to fulfill his promise to love me and forgive me and be with me and save me. Great promises, but if my God is limited, then how do I know he can fulfill his promises? It reminds me, there's, there's always this point I see in movies about, about fathers and their kids, movies about families. There's always this point in the movie that I really hate. Um, it's when the, the dad gets down on his knee and he makes an absolute promise to his kids that he doesn't have the ability, the power to keep. A, a dad will get on his knee and he will promise, I promise you, son, I will be there at your little league game. I promise you, sweetie, I will be there at your dance recital. Will you? You can do your best, but what if your car breaks down? What if you get stuck in a traffic jam? What if you get sick and die? Are you going to be there? No, you can't control your ability to fulfill that promise because you are not free. You are limited. You are limited by the circumstances and realities of this world. If our God is limited, then how can we count on him to fulfill any of his promises? Yeah, he wants to do that. But what if the other God gets in the way? What if evil gets in the way? What if chance kicks in? Fortunately, that's not the God we believe in. The God we believe in is a God who is utterly and absolutely free. He is without limit. He is without boundary. He is without condition. Nothing limits our God. So when he says he's going to do something, you can count on it. It's going to happen. There's nothing that can stop God. So God is free. It's not an academic reality to me. It's why I can have peace. It's why I can wake up and not be fearful because God is free. I encourage you to go through that exercise with each of the attributes of God. Ask yourself, how would my life be different today if God did not have this attribute? If this was not true of God, if God was not omnipotent, if God was not just, if God was not gracious, that's an easy one. If God's not gracious, we're all in hell. So walk through each of those attributes and ask yourself, how would my life be different? As you do that, it will drive your worship. It will inflame your love for God. Think about the God that you serve. Compare him to the other gods. My Hindu friend, man, talk about insecurity in life. His God is not omnipotent. He is not free. He is not omniscient. He is not immutable. He's not any of those things. What if my friend accidentally offends one of the 299 million other gods in Hinduism? What if that God's more powerful than his God? He's out of luck. All his devotion, wasted. Man, what an insecure place to be. Or my Muslim friend, think about his God, Allah. A, a God who, who is not by nature love because he is all alone. He, he needs us to have any love. And, and his love, if you read the Quran, it is not self-sacrificing. It is not gracious. It is not unconditional. It's in fact full of conditions. You shall do these things, practice these five pillars, and then maybe I'll love you. Man, think about the burden you would feel, the insecurity you would feel if that was your God. Go through this list of attributes and ask yourself, how would my life be different if God was not this? It will drive your love for him. It will drive your worship for him. 
I've used up our time. It was actually my hope for us to be able to join together and respond and worship, but the time is up. And so I'm gonna close us in prayer and I'm gonna send you off to worship this week. I wanna encourage you guys. Again, you can download the essentials material for free. In your quiet times, I encourage you, turn to that list of attributes, read those verses, reflect on who your God is, and then spend some time thanking him. Thank God that this is our God. Join with me in prayer, if you will. Heavenly Father, we come before you in thankfulness. Thank you, God, that that this is you, that you are the triune God of the Bible, that you are omnipotent, you are free, you are immutable, you are omniscient. Thank you that you are just and gracious and loving. Thank you for all of these things that are true about you. Lord, it is only because that is who you are that we have any hope in life, that we have any peace, any security. It's because of who you are. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you that in grace you chose to reveal yourself, your nature, your attributes to us. We don't deserve you to do that, Lord. We deserve for you to leave us in the dark. We're sinners, we're rebels. And yet in mercy you have revealed yourself to us, not just so that we can academically know you, but so that we can love you and worship you. Thank you so much that you want to love us, that you want us to love you. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have, that for all of eternity, if we have believed in the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus, as payment for our sins, that for all eternity, we will sit in your presence. We will see you face to face. We will bask in the joy of each and every one of these attributes. Thank you, Lord, that we get to spend eternity with a God like you. Thank you that you've made that possible through your son, Jesus. And we pray that as we go from here, that your spirit would capture our hearts and change us and mold us and make us into thankful people. Please help us to be grateful for who you are. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys.